Well, howdy this morning. Break the routine, saying good morning. I guess we could say buenos dias or something of that sort. I think I'm okay. I think that's what that means. Guten Tagen, is that right? Uh, anyway. Got a paper I'm going to give you here just in a minute. We're going to have a word of prayer first. Um, go ahead and get your Bible, have it ready. We're not going to go to one particular text yet. There is one that I want to get to, but I have a long introduction, and hopefully it'll make sense to you as we do that. And it's it's actually on the paper that I'm going to give you. So, but But what we want to do is... Um, since again, we're not going to have like one passage to just go around reading, but if, uh, if you don't want to, obviously you don't have to, but for those that are interested, there's a number of verses on here that we're going to look at, and so you can kind of have them ahead of time to kind of be trying to get ready for that. Um, so obviously encourage some participation in that, but uh, let's go ahead and pray. Father, this morning, we, uh, we thank you for your word, thank you for the Lord. <clears throat> the Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, just pray this morning as we look at this particular subject, which uh, obviously has to do with what we had recently looked at in, in the Psalms, particularly Psalm 110, I pray that you would just um, help us, and uh, I think sometimes this is, this is probably a subject we all uh, ag agree on and uh, maybe take for granted in some ways, but uh, Hopefully, uh, just considering uh, it this morning in this light will hopefully put a, a fresh emphasis on it for us, and uh, I, I pray we would just, again, be true to your word, and we ask these things in Jesus' name, and for his sake we pray, amen. So, could you pass these out for me, brother? Um, as, as Brother John gets those distributed there, uh, you can see by the title of it when you get it. Um, this is about the deity of Christ. Now, what does that term mean, the deity of Christ? Sometimes I think I may take things for granted that you all understand, you know, what I'm saying or what this means and that, and, and sometimes that's dangerous because, you know, you might not uh, have the same understanding of the word. Uh, that I have, for instance, or whatever. So what's the term the deity of Christ mean? I mean, it's not real difficult, but it just simply means that Christ is God, okay? Uh, his godhood, if you can word it that way. Now, and, and this, what we want to look at here, again, this, this kind of follows on the heels of Last week, we looked at Psalm 110, which was a very messianic psalm, all right, all about the Lord Jesus, and, and it really emphasized certain things about him, his deity, uh, and particularly him being God the Son, who, is, who's, who now sits at the right hand of God the Father, and so on, all right, so this really just follows up with that. Now, um, I, I included and wanted to mention... Uh, a couple things by way of background here, because I, I, I think, as I was thinking about this, 
not everybody always catches this. Now, now, Pastor Brinker will understand some of what I'm getting ready to say as he relates to this, okay? Um, but as somebody who, who preaches or teaches the Bible, all right, um, we're all affected by different things, all right? Somebody asked a preacher one time how long it took him to prepare the sermon, for instance. And at the time, this man was, I think, 57 years old. His answer was 57 years. And somebody's like, what? Well, you know. But the point being, what he was trying to get across is, you know, preparing, presenting a message, a lesson, whatever, is more than just, you know, sitting down for so many hours the week before and putting some things together. I mean, there's a lot of things that go into that. I mean, every time that... that Pastor Brinker stands up here and brings a message, all right, it's more than, and, and there's a lot of, you know, study and preparation that goes into that, but there's a lot more to it than that as well, all right? I mean, he has a whole lifetime of experience and background that somehow or another fits into that and affects that, all right? And, and that's true for everybody, for, for those that hear what's being delivered, the same thing's true. You filter what you hear through your background, through your experiences, and so on. I mean, that's true for everybody. And sometimes we, uh, I probably do, I'm sure, and, and you know, I think sometimes we take for, we, we, I don't know the right way to say that, but we, we, we take for granted that that, you know, that everybody understands where we're coming from or, you know, or vice versa. We take for granted that somebody sitting there knows what we mean by saying some cliche or some phrase or something that they may not understand because it's never that's never been told them or you know their background is different so it might mean something different to them i mean for instance and this is just a one very little example but the term receive christ i mean I've never been a Catholic, but to somebody that has a Catholic background, my understanding is receiving Christ to them basically is taking the Mass because every time they, they participate in the Mass, they are receiving Christ. I mean, but, but, for, you know, but for a lot of us, we never even, you know, that doesn't register with us because we don't have that kind of a background, All right? So, so what I'm getting at is everybody has a unique background, all right? And there's a particular reason, and I'm getting ready to tell you this, um, as to why maybe of recent this subject and this emphasis has been on my mind, okay? And if possible, Brother Andy, could you pause the recording for just a few minutes? We'll pick right back up with that momentarily here. But for me, per way, this is a... Uh, an important subject for any Christian, the deity of Christ. It is, a, it is a major theme of the Bible, by the way. And both of the two groups that I mentioned previously here um, uh, were, you know, to, to really one of the big, um, can I say, characteristics of them that distinguish them from what we believe, for instance, all right? We believe the Bible is the Word of God they would say the same thing. Now, the one group, they, they accept and welcome the Old Testament, at least supposedly, but reject the New Testament. The other 
says that their beliefs are based on the Bible, and they accept the Bible. Now, there is uh, some, some, if you want to say, some twist to that as well, because uh, obviously, uh, you know, they really don't, but, uh, and I'm trying to be careful what I say again, because we've got the recording back on here, um, but, uh, you know, so there's some limitations in, in their belief of that, all right? But so this subject of the deity of Christ is something that's extremely, extremely important. And again, as I said, my present situation, circumstances and so on, has a bearing on all of this. And so um, I, I think there's benefit, obviously, to every Christian having a better understanding of the Bible's teaching concerning Christ, okay? And I don't question that anybody in here, maybe with the exception of Levi, since he's only four months old and can't... Uh, probably doesn't comprehend what we're talking about. Who knows? Maybe he does. But, uh, <laughs> I mean, with the exception of him, I don't doubt that everybody here readily agrees that, you know, the Bible clearly teaches that Jesus is God and, and so on, okay? But how, how can we take the Bible and demonstrate that to somebody else, you know? Okay? So, in the introduction for that, and again, this has been affected a lot by looking at some of the Psalms, particularly Psalm 110 recently, but in understanding who and what uh, the Christ of the Bible, because again, there are many people in this, even in America today, that say they believe in Jesus, but if, you know, if things were just, just able to be sorted out and hashed out, they don't necessarily believe the same thing that you do about Jesus, all right? Or maybe I should say, as, as what the Bible teaches about Jesus. And so it is uh, very important, again, I think. But there's several major factors, all right, here in this. And, and there's some presuppositions that all of us, I think, obviously bring to this subject. One is we believe the Bible is actually the Word of God. That's something that's important, all right? We really believe the Bible is the Word of God. Um, we therefore assume that what the Bible teaches is true. We believe that God has communicated what He wants us to know about Himself through His Word, the Bible, uh, and thus what He, through the Word, tells us about Himself must be accepted in spite of our ability or inability to fully understand it. And we've mentioned several times, I mean, you know, if we really think about it, this concept, I mean, God is, in, in actuality, He is far beyond our human ability to really understand who and what He is. And, and really, if you think about that, that makes sense, because we're humans, right? We have, there's a cap, there's a ceiling on what we can really understand. We don't, I mean, and... and, and God is far beyond that ceiling, that cap. But yet at the same time, there are things we really can understand about God. We can relate to Him because of who He is and what He's done in creating us and, and you know, many other things, giving us His Word and so on. So, in approaching this subject of the deity of Christ, when you think about it from a doctrinal standpoint, there's also a, a logical path. Now, uh, in other words, there's a doctrinal foundation. You know, Isaiah 44, I think, I think it's 44, talks about how, you know, 
line upon line, precept upon precept, and so on. And, and with, with everything you build, I mean, there's a process that you go through, and, and the right foundation has to be there, or this won't be, it won't be right. And so, it, when you think about this from a, from a doctrinal standpoint, all right, uh, considering the right doctrine of Christ should include, all right, bibliology, or understanding what the Bible is, how God gave us the Bible, including, of course, inspiration, but preservation, but then, and, and so on, but and how, we, and how we should interpret and study the Scripture. That, that all fits into this. In other words, can we just take a statement and say, well, that means that. We think that means that. Um, and that's what a lot of people do, by the way, all right? And, and, uh, and, and we're not talking about all the details of every one of these statements right now, but... Um, but then theology, all right? So God, understanding who God is. Uh, I see a typo on that, who Gid is, but who God is and what he is like, all right? Um, in other words, his quality of being God, his divine essence. The biblical essence of deity demands perfection. Perf it, I mean, in other words, the way the Bible, what God tells us about himself in the Bible, he is perfect. There has never been any, any taint of God's perfection. And I don't mean just sinless, that's, that's true, but I'm talking about, in other words, He has always been all-powerful, all-knowing. He has always been light. He has always been love. And that's important because what, what, when you take what the Bible teaches about God into consideration, it, it really means that there's never been a time that who God is could have ever been any less. I mean, and, and I don't know if I got that across right. All right, for instance, and there's another, another group, and I'm not, I'll, I'll just mention this one on here because it doesn't have a personal connection at this point, has in the past, but the, the LDS, the Mormons, for instance, all right, they believe that God was once a man and that you and I, if we were good Mormons, all right, and I'm not, and I'm, by saying this, I'm not trying to be critical of them or demean them in any way, all right? This is just what their, their teaching says, all right? But you can become God. But that's not the God of the Bible, because if God was ever any less than what he is, he's not what the Bible says he is. So it is a total... Uh, fallacy, and it's a total uh, error to say that, God, you know, you can become God. Because you wouldn't be God as the Bible describes God. Okay? So all that fits into here, all right? And, and so the quality of God, His divine essence, the biblical essence of deity demands perfection and completeness as well as eternality and infiniteness and so on. So, can a lesser being ever attain uh, deity or godhood? The biblical answer to that is no. All right? And then also consider uh, not just that, the quality, the essence of God, but the trinity of God. Now, this is, a, this is particularly an issue that some of these groups we've already mentioned have issues with. And the main reason seems to be because it seems irrational. To the human mind. That is, to me, the main reason, all right? Because 
the Bible clearly makes statements that there is one God. That's true. And there is but one God. All right, but the Bible does teach that God is a triune being. Now, uh, so I don't, I'm, I want to try to stay with this for time's sake so I don't get bogged down on, on a rabbit, or, you know, on one particular thing, all right? So the Trinity of God, who he reveals himself as being. Does the Bible teach that more than one personage is God? Now, that might seem like a strange word. In other words, a person, all right? Our view of what the Bible teaches concerning this is there's one God, but he consists of three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, all right? That's the typical terminology we use, all right? But then some people, again, in trying to rationalize that out, okay, that, that, that can't be one God. Well, it is one God. And some of the reasons being there, all right, when we think about this, is, I mean, the Bible teaches, and, and this is seen not just in the New Testament, all right? The New Testament does clearly teach what we call the Trinity, all right? Clearly. The Old Testament does as well, though, and it lays the foundation for everything in the New Testament. There are things that the New Test that were a mystery to the Old Testament that the New Testament reveals, okay? Sure. Now, the New Testament, in this particular matter, you can see the Trinity of God being taught in the Old Testament, um, particularly if you're careful and you, 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 know, you study, compare Scripture with Scripture, you can see it. Um, it's just not as clear as the New Testament, and the New Testament gives us more information on it, makes it clearer. It's a better lens, if you or, you know, a more focused lens, so to speak, to, to, to bank, bring that out more clearly. But the Bible teaches a plurality of the Godhead. You see that from creation, all right? Genesis 1.26. And, and we're not, we can't take time right now to go into every one of these statements, all right, and, and look at everything involved here. But in that verse, all right, that's one of the instances there, the, the Bible quotes God as saying, God said, let us make man in our image. Now, these other groups, like I was mentioning before, they have their so-called, you know, ways around these things and, and, and all this, but... The point is, that's not, that's not an isolated case. And when something is repeated over and over and over and over and over again in the Bible, it should be looked at as, okay, this is the actual teach. This is not just some isolated thing that we might be misunderstanding, okay? Like, for instance, in relation to the, to the, to the Mormon group, okay, uh, they practice baptism for the dead. That whole thing is based on a statement, okay, in 1 Corinthians 15 uh, that is kind of an obscure statement, all right? Uh, but my point being is a lot of these groups reject so much of the clear teaching of the Bible, and they build a whole system on this obscure little statement here. Uh, but that's common for, for cults and so on, all right? But... Um, but the Bible teaches a plurality of the Godhead, and I didn't include these uh, numbers here, but I believe based on uh, looking at this, and again, this is just going off my memory right here now, but the most common uh, form for God is a plural form in the Bible. 
There are. Now, now one, of the, one of the answers against that is, well, that, that's the only way it's ever used. That's not the case. The, the singular form of that word that's translated God is used about 250 times in the Old Testament. But the plural is used 2,500 times, 10 times as much. And again, I think those are the exact numbers. But, but you see, I mean, it's not just some, some little thing that, you know, okay, yeah, that's, you know. But it's the consistent presentation throughout the Bible. All right, so let me get back on track here. The plurality of the Godhead. The Bible teaches the unity of God. Now, does somebody want to read uh, Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4? All right, Andy, this is a familiar, familiar uh, verse probably to you. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. All right, and, and that verse is generally looked at as used as a, a, an answer against a tri, you know, a triune view of God, because it says God's one, right? He's one Lord. Well, it's interesting, the word God there is plural, and the word Lord, of course, is singular, but He is one. Now, and then so say, how can more than one person be one God? Well, because of unity. So, so the Bible teaches a plurality of the, of the Godhead, but it also teaches the unity of the Godhead. These three are one. Again, that, that, that might be hard for us as humans to really rationalize out and comprehend, but it is what the Bible teaches consistently. Consistently. Again, not just an isolated statement, you know, one or two times in the Bible, but it's consistent. All right? And so uh, you see that. But the Bible presents not just plurality and unity, but when you take all that together, the Bible presents a tri unity of God. Somebody, if you would, go to 1 John chapter 5, verse 7. We'll read that just a second, all right? Brother John will get that. Um, but we're not going to take the time because they're longer passages and it would take more time to, to point it all out. But if you, if you studied Isaiah 48, 12 through 16, and chapter 63, 7 through 14, you'll clearly see that in both of those passages, there is, they're described as God... You have a Father, Son, and Spirit presented there. You have Jehovah, you have His Son, and you have the Spirit presented there in those passages. And all referred to equally as God. All right? 1 John 5, 7. This is probably the single clearest, in my mind, statement in all of the Bible concerning the Trinity of God. 1 John 5, 7 says, For there are three that bear record in heaven, the Father, the Word, and the Holy Ghost, and these three are one. All right, notice that. There are three, and names them, Father, the Word, which is John's typical term for God the Son, all right, and the Spirit. And he says they're bearing record in heaven. Why? Because that's where, you know, that's their home, right? They're in heaven. Jesus is at the right hand of the Father right now, and so on. Obviously, in another sense, God is omnipresent, but where, where does God dwell, okay? Um, but it says there, these three are, what's that last statement, the last word? These three are one. It's no different than what the rest of the Bible teaches, all right? It is consistent with that. By the way, that is one of the verses that's attacked in the modern versions, by the way, uh, because of the corrupt text that it's translated from. That verse is omitted. I mean, 
But anyway, so you have, you have uh, bibliology laying the foundation, what we believe, theology, what the Bible teaches about God, the person of God, then Christology, understanding the person and work of Christ or God the Son. The Christ of the Bible is demonstrated as being God. He meets the criteria for God, has the attributes of God, all right? Uh, in fact, that said, we're, I'm hoping here to have about 15 minutes or so uh, to look at John chapter 1. Okay, that's the passage I want to get to, but somebody, if you would, go to John chapter 3 and read verse 13, all right? Pastor Brinker, if you'll read that. And consider, in that context, Jesus and Nicodemus are in, a, in the midst of a conversation, right? Jesus has told Nicodemus uh, several times, you know, if, if anyone wants to see the, the kingdom of God, he must be born again. And in the course of that conversation, then Nicodemus, he, he doesn't understand, and, and Jesus counters that with, you know, if you can't understand these earthly concepts, how are you going uh, to understand heavenly things? And then in the course of that explanation, these words in verse 13 occur. And no man hath ascended up to heaven, but he that came down from heaven, even the Son of Man which is in heaven. Now, those are, that's Jesus speaking to Nicodemus. So think about this. Who, where was Jesus at that time? He was on earth, but he was physically standing there in front of Nicodemus carrying on a conversation. But he also referred to himself as being somewhere else. Did, what, what did that verse say? He, the Son of Man is also in heaven. How could he be standing there talking to Nicodemus, but at the same time be in heaven? Not possible with me or with you, or, but we're talking about God the Son, who is God and man. As a man, he had some physical limitations, but he's also God. And as God, he always has the characteristics, the attributes of God. You know, a lot of people say uh, in Philippians chapter 2, I don't know if we'll get to that passage this morning, but it's another passage that really is a, an important passage concerning the person of Christ, who Christ is. That passage clearly teaches he's always been God, he became man. But there it says that, talks about he laid aside, right? And, and people you know, say that he laid aside his deity. He did not. He's never been anything less than God, but there was a time when he became man. And I can't fully understand it or explain it to you, but he is God and he is man. So who, I mean, if you think about who God is, it's really not that hard to pull off. <laughs> I mean, right? But... Again, we get limited in our human thinking and think, well, that just doesn't make sense. How could that, you know? No, it doesn't always make sense to us, but that doesn't make it not real and not true, all right? Jesus referred to himself there in the presence of Nicodemus as also being in heaven because as God, he is omnipresent. Now, uh, it's, it's no different than in references in the book of Hebrews talking about when Jesus was suffering on the cross, he was also doing a priestly work in heaven. Again, God, man. But 
The Christ of the Bible became man. He's always been God, but he became man. And we're going to get to a couple of those passages here, hopefully at least one uh, momentarily. The Lord Jesus, God the Son, or the Son of God, both of those terms, some people believe those mean different things, but they're interchangeable terms. God the Son or Son of God. I can remember one time we were in uh, Williamsburg somewhere and we were doing some door-to-door visitation on Saturday, we were in, got into a house, we were talking to them, and, and, and I, I don't remember everything, but I remember this, for whatever reason, this sticks out to me, that this, this guy, he was like really acceptant that, that Jesus is the Son of God, but he had a hard time saying he was God. Well, what does the Son of God, what does that mean? It doesn't make him any less than God the Father. He is God. He has a different role. They're doing different things, but he's still God. And anyway, uh, so then on the back, all right, <clears throat> some Old Testament presentations concerning Christ's deity. Again, all of this is not something that just comes about in the New Testament. This, this can be seen in the Old Testament as well. Uh, and we've mentioned some of this in looking at some of these psalms, the number of messianic prophecies, there are numbers of them that point to a or the Son of God, all right? And, and we looked at those verses, but somebody read, if you would, John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. Somebody want to get that? All right. And many other signs surely did Jesus in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these are written that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you might have life through his name. All right, the reason I've referenced this verse in relation to those Old Testament statements that there's a Son of God is that verse clearly tells us, that passage tells us that to have eternal life, to be saved, one has to have the conviction, the belief that Jesus is the Son of God. Is, is that not what the passage says? So it's an important thing, all right? And, uh, uh, but again, the New Testament picks up and elaborates more on that than what the Old Testament does, but the Old Testament does introduce it and open the door for us. Let's do this. Somebody, if you would, get Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, a familiar passage of Scripture. Isaiah 7, 14, and uh, actually we might not get to John 1, because there's another passage here in the Old Testament I want to look at, but somebody, would somebody get uh, Isaiah 7, and then everybody else, let's go in our Bible to Isaiah chapter 9. We'll let Brother John read chapter 7, verse 14, then we'll look at 9, 6, and 7. These are verses we often hear at Christmas time, so to speak, but very important passages. Go ahead, please. Isaiah 7, 14 says, Therefore the Lord himself shall give you a sign. Behold, a virgin virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, everybody's heard that verse, that passage, right? And it's referred to in the New Testament in, uh, for instance, in Matthew 1, where the angel visits Joseph because Joseph is all distraught because he discovers Mary's pregnant, remember? 
They're to be married. They hadn't been together, but she's pregnant. So obviously he's, you know, wondering things in his mind, so on. So the angel is sent from the Lord to instruct Joseph that don't worry. That which is, in fact, in, in Matthew 1, it says this, that which is conceived in her is of the Holy Ghost. And then it goes on to quote Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and shall bear a, what's the word? Son. Remember that Old Testament concept of God having a son, right? This is the son now coming into humanity, all right? Now, and, and then, then uh, also toward the end of that verse, it says what? He, he shall be called Emmanuel, which being interpreted is what? God with us. I mean, that's important. Again, you, the, the, sometimes those are things we hear all the time, and we hear it at like Christmas, and it just sounds like it's some you know, Christmas carol kind of thing or whatever. But when you start thinking about what that verse is saying, there's, a, there's a, some very important statements there. Not just that a virgin's going to get, you know, conceive, but clearly it's a son, all right? Again, that's, that, that's an interesting and important concept in the Old Testament, but also that that son is then called God with us. Makes sense when you think of it in light there. All right, Isaiah chapter 9, verse 6 and 7. Again, this is a, a verse that we hear all the, a lot at, at Christmas time. Does somebody want to read these verses for us real quick? All right, Tim, you got that one? And to us a child is born, and to us a son is given. The government should be upon his shoulder, and his name should be called Wonderful, Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there shall be no end. On the throne of David and upon his kingdom to order it and to establish it with judgment and with justice from henceforth even forever. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will perform this. All right, again, this is, a, this is another passage that we hear most of the time referred to during Christmas. All right, so this is a common, or at least part of it's a common thing you see on Christmas cards that are sent out and stuff. But again, if we, if we stop and look at what this passage is saying, I mean, there's, a, there's an awful lot here that demonstrates what we're talking about, the deity of Christ taught in the Old Testament. I mean, notice what it says, for unto us a child is born. You can see in this passage clearly that the one that's being described here has to be both man, because that's presented first, and has to be God. All right, notice, unto us a child is born. That, that demonstrates that this one has to be a man. All right? God's not born as far as the person of God. He's eternal. He always has, he always is. All right? So he has to be born. So it's got to be a man. All right? And then also involved in that, he's, he's going to be of the throne of David. So he's going to be a descendant of David. Uh, and so on and so on. But notice also things that demonstrate that he must be God. All right? It says, unto us a child is born, a son. Again, that has both connotations, man and God in the biblical context because God has a son that's introduced to us in the New Testament. 
All right, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Talks about his ruling and reigning. That could refer to human uh, government, but in the biblical context, it does go beyond that. But his name shall be called Wonderful. This is a term, by the way, the Hebrew word here is a term that's only used of God in the Old Testament. It's never used of a man. It's only used of God. Um, but wonderful, all right? And then uh, counselor, all right? This is a word that, you know, he's to be consulted, but um, uh, it perhaps could refer to both God and man. But then um, notice the next statement. What's it say? The mighty God. If that's not clear, I don't know what would be. This son that's going to be, this child that's going to be born, this son that's given is clearly said to be the mighty God. Now, again, he must be man in order to be born, but he's more than just man. Clearly stated the son, uh, the mighty God here, all right? Then notice also the Prince of Peace, all right? But then uh, I skip one, the Everlasting Father. So eternal God here. Uh, again, there's no way someone can honestly say the Old Testament does not talk about God the Son, that the Old Testament doesn't talk about a triune God, all right? Um, but the Prince of Peace. All right, so you see these, these uh, uh, statements here. Let me see Isaiah 7, Isaiah 9, these. And again, there's, there's other passages. These are very clear here, all right? But clearly in the Old Testament, the being we describe as God, the Father, is seen to be Jehovah. All right, somebody, if you would, turn to, uh, maybe it'd be better if we all did, Isaiah 40, Isaiah 40. One passage here I want to point out real quick, and then we'll, we'll have to stop. But clearly in the Old Testament, the being we describe as God, again, is referred to as Jehovah. Now, now in the Old Testament, we've talked about this before when we were looking at other psalms and that, uh, but Jehovah is distinguished as what? Capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. Now, the O-R-D are made a little smaller in your print for purposes of... but. But that's the, that's the rendering of the proper name of God, Jehovah, right? All right, so Isaiah 40, and I guess I got to get there, didn't turn there. But um, somebody, would somebody read those first three verses? All right, Andy, if you would. Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, saith your God. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem, and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that crieth in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. And it, it goes on, verses 4 and 5 are associated with verse 3. Now, now just taking this at face value, and I've got to be quick here, who is that talking about, the one that's going to come and prepare the way? John the Baptist. And you can clearly see that from the gospel accounts because basically they're quoting this passage of Scripture exactly saying this is the one who came, right, doing this. But one other detail, if you want to say, I want to point your attention to. In verse 3 here, what does it, who, I should say, 
does it say that John was coming to prepare the way for, specifically? The Lord in capitals, so it's who? Jehovah. Um, again, God the Son in the Old Testament is also referred to as Jehovah. Again, there, there's so many things you could just keep going down in these contexts, but the whole point being the, the concept of the God-man of Christ is not just a New Testament concept. It is seen in the Old Testament. More clearly presented and seen, emphasized in the New Testament, yes, but it is clearly seen in the Old Testament. And so, again, we'll stop there and then... Lord willing, next time maybe we'll look at John chapter 1, which is an amazing passage of Scripture in light of this whole subject in reality. All right, so let's, let's go ahead and pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word and these truths, and I pray that ultimately you'd help us not just to have, you know, I, again, I don't think anybody here disagrees with the, you know, the, what we talk about the person of Christ, but help us to understand it uh, as best as humanly possible and be able to uh, help others and present it from the Bible to them as well, those who want to contradict this particular uh, important doctrine. So we ask these things in Jesus' name, amen.